This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review, heard every Sunday at noon on Zoomer Radio. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. Two hidden pages from the diary of Anne Frank have been revealed through the use of new technology, and they're all about sex. We'll talk to the executive director of the Anne Frank Museum. And at 85, outspoken U.S. Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg is an unlikely celebrity. Now her story is being told in a new documentary called RBG, and we'll talk to the producers. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. We're all familiar with the need for sometimes traumatic discussions about when elderly drivers should give up their cars. In the U.S., doctors and public health experts have another worry. When should they surrender their guns? In an article in Annals of Internal Medicine, the doctors and experts said they were primarily concerned about the risk of suicide by gun owners with dementia. But they also warned that dementia patients might put family members and caregivers at risk by becoming confused and mistaking them for intruders. The oldest woman in the United States is believed to be 113 years old and living in suburban Cleveland. Lessie Brown was born in 1904 in Atlanta and moved to Cleveland when she was 18. She married, had five children, and now has more than 50 grandchildren, great-grandchildren, and great-great-grandchildren. Her 88-year-old daughter, Verlene Wilson, says her mother's loving spirit and faith in God has seen her through. She just loves everyone, and I believe that that has a lot to do with her longevity. The previous oldest person, Delphine Gibson, died last week in Pennsylvania at the age of 114. Ever get caught up in this argument at work or with friends? Only supposed to be one space after a period, not two spaces. No, there's supposed to be two spaces. Not one space. Many Zoomers are taught to put two spaces after a period, especially if you learn to type on a typewriter. Only those over 40 would ever consider using two spaces. But the debate has resurfaced this week, and thanks to a new study out of Skidmore College in New York, researchers found that among people who write with two spaces after a period, reading speed increased by 3%. It looks like the days of the analog clock may be numbered. In the UK, some schools are removing them from exam halls after finding that teenagers can't tell time on the traditional clock faces, and it's leading to anxiety for kids raised in a digital world. I'm Libby Snymer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. Like any ordinary teenager, Anne Frank tried to hide some entries in her diary. But using new technology, researchers have uncovered the racy text hidden beneath brown paper that Anne pasted over her personal thoughts 
while she was in hiding in Amsterdam. I reached Ronald Leopold, executive director of the Anne Frank Museum in Amsterdam. It was well known that there were two tape pages in this first uh, red check diary of Anne Frank, but uh, what was unknown is the text that was hidden underneath. There was a photo taken during a very regular check on the condition of the diary papers, and with the help of new digital photo editing techniques, it was uh, possible to make the text underneath this brown paper with which these pages are covered legible. Was it a controversial? Given the fact that millions of people have read this diary, millions of people come to visit the Anne Frank House. Her diary papers belong to World Heritage, Cultural Heritage by UNESCO. So whenever you find new information, and in this case even new text, I think you need to share it with the public. And what is also important to re- is the fact that it's not the first time that text fragments from Anne Frank that she herself did not destined to be published were published. It started actually with her own father in 1947 who added fragments from her diary, from her first diary that was not meant for publication. So what did you find in these pages? Innocent, naughty jokes. And there is a short text description, and she introduces it with a, with a line, I sometimes imagine that someone might come to me and ask me to inform him about sexual matters. How would I go about it? And then there is a short text how she would go about that. So content-wise, it's actually not very new because Anne wrote also in other parts of the diary and other entries about sexual matters. So, So the face of the teenager of Anne Frank was well known, and that's a face that we can also see in these two pages. It's very much teenage jokes from that time. Many people from that generation still very well know this type of jokes uh, that they learned when they were teenagers and teenagers talk about you know, each other about these topics. So it's, it's not a, a very rare thing for teenagers by the time in the 40s and the 50s to tell uh, each other jokes like this. And even some of these jokes were even broadcasted on the radio by the time. So she also writes about that, that she's listening with her by the time her boyfriend, Peter von Pels, with whom she's in hiding, and that they listen to the radio, that also the radio uh, broadcasts this type of joke. So it's not a very new thing, I would say. She is introducing a fictional character with whom she starts a conversation, a dialogue. And this is something that, you know, these texts were written on September 28, 1942. It's still very early. Uh, She is 13 years old. She's in hiding for almost three months, writing in a diary for a little over three months, mostly writing about facts that happens in her life, events that happen. And this is actually one of the first times that she's introducing fiction. In 1944, she starts to rewrite her diary in the form of a novel with the title The Secret Annex. In her whole process of her becoming a writer, this is really an interesting moment, I think. And it's been said that uh, the value of these pages is, you know, she's become so much of a symbol of the Holocaust that this takes it back and shows that she was an ordinary girl. 
Yes, I think uh, it's fair to say that these two pages again show you the Anne Frank, age 13, uh, being in hiding for only three months uh, and very much showing you uh, a girl coming of age. There is no reference to the circumstances in which she lives by the time and when she's in hiding and when she writes these lines. So it's very much about her own personality, about her own thoughts and feelings and not so much about the circumstances that she lives in by the in 1942. Okay. Thank you so much for that. Appreciate it very much. My pleasure. That was Ronald Leopold, executive director of the Anne Frank Museum in the Anne Frank House in Amsterdam. I'm Libby Snymer and this is the Zoomer Weekend Review. Coming up, a new documentary on an iconic US Supreme Court justice has just opened. You're listening to the Zoomer Weekend Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. I ask no favor for my sex. All I ask of our brethren is that they take their feet off our necks. We welcome today Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. That's a clip from RBG, the documentary that celebrates U.S. Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who is best known for her pioneering work fighting for women's rights. Not only did she carve out a brilliant legal career when women were few and far between, she became a cultural icon and acquired celebrity status in her 80s. Now the mighty 85-year-old is the subject of a new documentary by filmmakers Betsy West and Julie Cohen. There's so much to her story. There's a heroine who faces great obstacles trying to, in, in her own life and trying to fight for equal rights for all women in the U.S. Uh, there's a beautiful love story. She's become unexpectedly in her 80s kind of a big pop culture icon among young women in the, in the U.S. and some other parts of the world. And there's just so many elements that make this an amazing story. And we just wanted to make a film about her. Was it difficult to get her permission to do it? Well, it took a little bit of persuasion. Um, We took a page from uh, Justice Ginsburg's own playbook and um, just worked very persistently with her to talk to her about uh, participating with us. Her first response was, not yet. And, uh, you know, she didn't say no. So then we went back at her with another idea of how to approach the project. And eventually uh, we did get quite a bit of access to her. You start the film with a montage of people uh, calling her nasty names. Justice Ginsburg does have detractors, particularly kind of in the U.S. right-wing radio sphere, um, who like to pin a lot of things on her, who don't like some of the more liberal opinions and dissents that she's written over the years, but also, you know, just that she's an older woman seems to rub some people the wrong way. And so we start off with some insults, but then in the film, she comes fighting back strong when you see her uh, lifting weights, planking more longer than people half her age can plank uh, and doing push-ups. And she was one of nine women in a class of 500 at Harvard Law School. Tell me about that. 
Well, Justice Ginsburg talks about the experience of being in such a tiny minority. The uh, law school dean called all the women together for a lovely dinner. Afterward, he sat them down and asked them one by one, why were they at the Harvard Law School taking a place uh, that could be occupied by a man? Um, as, as Justice Ginsburg describes it, it was a very unwelcome environment for the women who were there, and yet she went on the law review. She was a superstar from a very early age. She then transferred to Columbia Law School because her husband had moved to New York. She graduated tied for first at the top of her class, and yet when she got out into the job market, she couldn't find a job at a top law firm in New York because they just didn't hire women. She did manage to get a clerkship for a federal judge, and then she moved on to Rutgers University, where she was a law professor, um, ultimately moved to Columbia University, where I believe she became the first woman tenured professor at the law school there. One of the landmark cases that Justice Ginsburg actually wrote by the time she was a Supreme Court justice in the mid-1990s, and um, not uh, too much of a spoiler alert for those who will see our film, but a, a really important moment in her career was the case of Virginia Military Institute, which had been a 150-year-old military institute that had been closed to women entirely. There was a case that was brought that because that institution received federal funding, that it should be open to both men and women. It was argued before the Supreme Court early in Justice Ginsburg's tenure as a Supreme Court justice, and she actually wrote the ruling that opened up this old-school military institute to women, and indeed uh, a number of women then joined and became cadets at VMI. What about her familial relationships? When we started making this film, we knew that Justice Ginsburg had had a long and happy marriage to her late husband, Marty Ginsburg, but we had absolutely no idea of the importance of that marriage uh, for both her personal happiness and her professional success. Marty Ginsburg was a man ahead of his time. He was himself a very accomplished tax lawyer, and yet he understood that he was married to a brilliant woman. And when she started bringing these cases in the early 70s, you know, attacking the discriminatory laws in our country, he realized that she was on a trajectory that might take her to the Supreme Court. And he supported her whole hog. He bragged about how smart she was when they were at Harvard Law School together. He took over more of the responsibility at home when her career was taking off in the 70s. When she became a federal judge, he gave up his job in New York and moved down to Washington. And then when there was an opening on uh, the U.S. Supreme Court, it was Marty Ginsburg, who was a very well-liked and very connected lawyer, who lobbied for his wife to be considered by President Clinton to go on that court. And what about her as a bubby? Well, she's uh, very proud of her grandchildren and none more than her granddaughter, Clara Spira, who just graduated from Harvard Law School and so is following in her footsteps. They have a wonderful, warm relationship. There's a lot of kidding in the family. There's a scene of uh, Clara and Justice Ginsburg together in the kitchen, and they also share a passion for music. What's next for her? She has no plans to retire. Justice Ginsburg has uh, said repeatedly when asked about this, as she often is, that uh, she will continue to do the job so long as she is capable. And uh, she gave a sign a few months ago when she announced her clerks 
not just for next year, but also she has selected her clerks for the year after. So that's an indication that um, she plans to, to be on the bench for a while. Okay. She's a fascinating person. Thanks for doing this. Thank you. Thank you so much. Filmmakers Betsy West and Julie Cohen produced RBG. The documentary opened in wide release on Friday. I'm Libby Zneimer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. Coming up, an ageless singer and Academy Award-winning actress celebrates a birthday today. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. Welcome back to the Zoomer Weekend Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. It's time for your international arts date book. Tips for those of you who are jetting around the world. Here's Jane Brown. First in Motor City. The Detroit Institute of Arts is hosting an exhibition of Star Wars costumes that runs through September 30th. The Studio of Lights in Paris has launched its inaugural exhibit featuring the work of Austrian painter Gustav Klimt. But it's not on the walls. It lights up the walls, floors, and ceilings in a colorful moving sequence set to classical music. Pictures taken by Stanley Kubrick, who when he was a staff photographer at Look magazine in the 1940s, have gone on display at the Museum of the City of New York. The director's first documentary, Day of the Fire, grew out of those pictures. The exhibit is called Kubrick Through a Different Lens. And all aboard the Riverside Museum in Glasgow, Scotland for Looking at Locomotives, which explores the city's 200-year heritage of train building. I'm Jane Brown, and that's the International Arts Book. Happy birthday, Sherilyn Sarkeesian, better known as Cher, who turns 72 today. Cher first gained popularity in 1965 as half of the folk rock husband-wife duo Sonny and Cher. But it wasn't long before she broke out to become a successful solo artist, leading actress, and fashion icon. Musically, she's released a number of hit singles, including Gypsies, Tramps, and Thieves, Dark Lady, and Believe. In the 70s, Cher emerged as a fashion trendsetter for her elaborate stage outfits on both the Sonny and Cher Comedy Hour and later on her own variety show. As an actress, Cher received critical acclaim for her performances in the films Silkwood, Mask, and her Best Actress Academy Award for Moonstruck. We travel back to 1965 and hear the song that started it all for Cher. Here she is, along with Sonny Bono, singing, I've Got You, Babe. That was Sonny and Cher with their hit, I've Got You, Babe. Cher turns 72 today. And that brings us to the end of another edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Libby Snymer. Thanks for joining me today. Be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. You've been listening to the Zoomer Week in Review. Produced by MZ Media Limited. Executive producer, Moses Snymer. Produced by Christine Ross, Michelle Saunders, Paul Thomas, and Andre Lowy. 
This has been an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review, heard every Sunday at noon on Zoomer Radio. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.